I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go with another beautiful episode. My guest for today is Hannah Chase. And Hannah is a recovered therapist. And what she has to say is so important. We talk about things such as the true friendships and connections that she made when she was in residential treatment for her eating disorder. And one of the things we talk about is because that was when she was her most authentic, most vulnerable, most genuine to who she really is. And interestingly, that's when she connected. It's when she got rid of the facades of what she's quote unquote supposed to be. That's when connections happen. She also talks about what motivated her to recover, what she's doing now. It is really just a beautiful, beautiful episode. That's all I'm going to say because I think I talk a little too long lately on these intros. So I'm going to cut them down for you guys so you get right into the podcast. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am really honored to introduce you all to our next guest, Hannah Chase. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I am really glad to have you here. So, Hannah, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do? You know, there's so many wonderful things in, in your paperwork that I want to get to on this episode. So just say a little bit about who you are and what you're doing right now. I am currently living in Appleton, Wisconsin. I am a licensed professional counselor. I currently work at a PHP IOP treatment facility for eating disorders. Um, they just opened about a year ago. So this is a brand new treatment facility. Um, I'm originally from Marquette, Michigan, which is a very small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, and I have two kids. And yeah, that's pretty much a, a snippet about me. Yeah, and here you are. And here I am. Mm -hmm. So Hannah, can you speak a little bit to what got you interested in working with eating disorders? I mean, obviously you have your own story and not everybody that's suffered with an eating disorder ends up going into the field of psychology. A lot of us have, but how did you end up here? Well, to make a long story short, um, going through treatment and what I've been through in the past uh, decade or so, um, I found it significantly important 
for my recovery to have recovered clinicians. Um, I think the first moment that I knew recovery was possible um, was when my therapist, Gwen, um, you know, she wrote, she helped Carolyn with the eight keys. Okay, can we can we just pause for one second, everybody? I did not know that Gwen had been your therapist. Okay, sorry, everyone. That's just for me, sort of like a, I just needed to acknowledge that. Gwen Grab, who is the, the co-author with Carolyn Costin, who wrote The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder. Go ahead. Sorry, Hannah. No, that's fine. So she was my therapist when I was in Satori in Long Beach. Um, so that was my transitional living um, after residential at Mirasol in Arizona. Um, so I just remember that I didn't know she was recovered. And it was something like we were talking about when we went out to dinner or something. And I was like, holy. You can swear on the show. Yeah. <laughs> holy shit. You know, here's Gwen. She's over there eating. I, I forget what the restaurant was, but like fries. And it was like, oh, like this just, you know, come to Jesus moment was like, oh, this is possible. This is someone I respected before I knew this, that she was a recovered clinician. And from that moment on, it was like, oh, okay, maybe I can do this. And I felt so much more respect towards her when she was giving me insights. Like, you've been through this, you know, you know, it, it's a totally different ball game when it's someone who's recovered versus reading a book in my perspective. Um, and then once I got out of Satori, my next therapist in Arizona um, for outpatient was also a recovered clinician. So I thought that that was my goal in life to kind of help others the way I had been helped. Yeah, that's that's how most of us ended up in the field. We We know the pain and suffering that has gone into the eating disorder. We know how hard the recovery process is. I've said this before. I hold my recovery as like a badge of honor, a badge of courage. Like that was one of the biggest things in my life to deal with was my eating disorder. And so when you fully recover, there is this idea, or at least for me, that there was nothing else I wanted to do. I was just like, this is, what else would I do in my life besides this? It was so powerful. Can you speak a little? You and I were talking before the before the podcast, and you are also a say it again. Is it be body positive facilitator? And it sounds I, I looked at the website and everything. It's amazing. Can you speak to it because it seems to cover all aspects that go into eating disorders. So can you share a little bit about that, Hannah? Yeah, sure. So this is a training that I took over the summer um, online, and it really opened up my eyes to look at body image from a different perspective, um, especially with everything that's been going on in the world today. Um, and, you know, the first lesson starts with um, these speaking about the messages that we've received from medical providers, from our family, our friends and media, and to kind of break that down. And it's like, these are the messages we've received from other people and how are they impacting us and the clients? Um, and then, it, you know, we go into talking about our, our family roots and body image. So kind of linking some of those positive aspects. Um, you know, I get this from my grandpa. I really love my grandpa. So I'm able to bring, you know, this body trait with me. And how amazing is that? Um, rather than, oh, I hate this about me. I get that from that side of the family, which is also something that happens, I think, a lot of the time. Um, 
So I've been in contact with one of the um, creators of it, and she has a, a story that is um, she's also recovered and her sister um, passed away from an eating disorder. So this is her, from what I you know understand is like they said, this is her goal to um, build a body positive uh, community. And how amazing is it that she's able to offer these courses? So I'm able to take this training and we use it with our teens and our adults. And there's different levels. So there's um, adolescent, there's middle school and adults. Um, so depending on kind of what the age group is at, at work, um, I go through the lessons and it's pretty eye-opening for them, especially when we talk about like the BMI and where that came from and how silly it is. Um, so to give them the facts as well of some of these things that they keep carrying around um, and how how much of an impact that has when it is just something someone created in 1839, you know? Say more about that because I think it's really important for listeners to hear about this, about how the BMI was created, that it really has, it, it, is, it is actually, I think, does more harm than good. So what is it that you tell clients about that? So it, in the Be Body Positive training or um, lessons, there's like a myth and a fact. So, you know, I go through like these statements and then the clients are supposed to say whether it's true or false. So we talked about the BMI and how it was created in 1839 by an astronomer, I believe. Um, and then insurance companies picked it up and they were like, how can we charge people more is what it kind of comes down to. And so overnight, you know, uh, millions of people became fat or obese just because they moved the number on this BMI scale. Right there. Hang on one second. I need you to repeat that because I use that to my, say to my clients all the time. And a number was changed and overnight people went to bed in one body label, shall we say, and then woke up no different in a new labeled body. So that's what I wanted you to get to. I apologize for interrupting. Oh, actually, I ran into this on Christmas Eve. I went to the doctor. So if you want me to talk about that for a minute. Sure. It's pretty raw, but um, I had COVID in think over Thanksgiving and I've been having um, symptoms still. So I went to the doctor and he commented on my weight gain. And that was the first moment I was like, you hear about this, that this happens, that you go to the doctor for one thing and they just attack you for, oh, maybe it's because of, you know, he said gained a substantial amount. And I was like, I'm here for a headache. Like I, I am here because I had COVID. It's Christmas Eve. What? And he knows my history. So he started it with, I know this is a touchy subject for you. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I am well aware of what my body looks like. Like, and it was just like, oh my God, this is what people go through. It's horrible. Imagine as somebody who's fully recovered, you still said it's still raw and vulnerable. Let's imagine, and forgive me for using that word over and over again, somebody in the in the depth of their eating disorder. And like you said, you go in for a headache, and I've discussed this with other professionals on the show. You go in for a headache and they say, mm, you've gained a substantial amount of weight, or you know, let's look at your weight gain. It is unbelievable. 
he didn't like, it just didn't make any sense. And he also assumed I was maybe pregnant. And it was like, I just felt like I was living in this odd bubble. And it was heartbreaking, I think, because I thought I had developed this rapport and trust with him. And then also like as a clinician, I'm going through this experience and my clients have talked about this on and on again. And it's like, I just, I, I haven't written a letter yet, but I will at some point. Um, and then he called me afterwards a few times to talk about medications. And it was just very odd. Like the pink elephant in the room is what I felt like. So if I would have been in a better headspace, I think I would have said something at the time. But I was I was overcome with emotions. And I was just like, what? The like, I'm going through COVID right now. Like, what? we're going through a pandemic. And that's your first thing you're going to comment on? How about like, hey, you know, I noticed you, uh, what is, what are you doing, you know, for yourself lately? Like, oh, well, um, you know, I work out, I, you know, I gave up my eating disorder. Like, I, I don't know. But instead he focused just on the weight gain. And what you're doing is trying to get through COVID. <laughs> it's not about your weight, diet, food, exercise you were at the doctor's for a checkup from a potentially deadly virus. And that's where the doctor went. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So I feel like we sort of got away from the BMI talk with this. Oh, yeah. I'm assuming, yes, that he, you know, put my weight in or something and looked at the BMI is what I'm assuming. Yeah. So that was a pretty eye-opening experience for sure. How do you talk to your clients about the the message we get from the media? Because you said the media is part of it. The amount of adolescent clients that we've had come in over quarantine who turn to social media, um, whether it's out of boredom or because they didn't have school, um, you know, and then they're picking up on these media um, messages. And for a lot of them, that's how the eating disorder began. And so we talked about like creating this aesthetic for eating disorders during in their media presence. You know, it's a lot of them have an all or nothing perspective. Either I have social media and I'm clouded with all these negative images or I don't have social media and I can get away from it all. But then, you know, I talk about like I have social media. I'm not following anyone who, you know, talks about, X diet or, you know, all these different diet mentalities, like you can, your vibe attracts your tribe. So you're going to accumulate, you know, these resources and positive people in your social media presence, but that's up to you to put on that filter, you know? So a lot of our teens don't have that filter yet. Um, so teaching them that you can still have social media, but you got to curb who you follow and what you follow. Yeah, it's it's called being an educated consumer. So you know, and and it's hard, especially during COVID. You know, it's so interesting. I still remember this. And I don't know if it was my age and I was very naive, or so I don't know if it's natural in your development, but my eating disorder was about 30 years ago. And I truly had no knowledge of airbrushing. I had no knowledge that what I saw 
on magazine covers, in magazine spreads. By the way, this is before social media. This is before anything. So we actually opened up a, a physical magazine. And I was drawn to these images. And I did not know that even these models did not look like that. These celebrities did not look like that. They were completely airbrushed. Do you talk about, I mean, it feels very common now, but there's still an age when you don't understand that things are being manipulated. Right, right. Yeah, we, we speak about that. And um, it's interesting to kind of have the perspectives from the adults to the teens, because it's a different mindset. Um, but we do talk about how much the media impacts us um, and what we can do about it. You know, sure, we can talk about what it does and what Photoshop does, but like, what can we do about it? Um, so creating uh, that community of positive influence is important. Yeah. How did how did body image impact you? You know, you said you you talk about it a lot with your clients. Um, was it was it? Do you still struggle with it? What does it mean? How, where are you now? I think I've turned a corner. I think it has been difficult for many years um, equating like worth to a size or um, a pant size or a shirt um, shirt size. I. I think a lot of my eating disorder was surrounded on how can I make myself smaller so I don't feel the attention because of the trauma I went through. I didn't want people looking at me. Um, so I just kind of wanted to hide. Um, so in regards to body now, I, I am thankful for, for having a body that was able to have two kids um, and be able to exercise appropriately. You know, I can get through the day. Um, I did break my pelvis um, post eating disorder after having been in recovery due to osteopenia. Um, so that was like another slap in the face that like these issues with your body can definitely carry over. Um, so that was difficult because I just felt well, I might as well give up like if it's still haunting me. Um, so that was an interesting experience as well. How did you not? What did you do, Hannah? It was a lot of family support, um, which I think is critical. Um, I went to great doctors. I was challenged by um, my family as well. Uh, you know, I have this inner core belief that my grandparents had the privilege of sending me to treatment and I don't want to let them know. Um, so that when I broke my pelvis, it was only two years after I'd gotten out of treatment. Um, so still kind of, I wouldn't say fully recovered at all, still kind of in the wits. Um, but I, I just kind of clung on to that and just like, I can't let them down. So I got to take care of myself. And it was definitely kind of interesting. You know, you can't run, you can't be active. Oh, this is still a problem. Maybe <laughs> now I'm like, oh shit, like, okay, maybe I'm still obsessed, you know? So kind of a slap back into reality. I want to point out, though, something that I think is important, which is you leaned into your values as opposed to the eating disorder. When you said with such um, not admiration, just gratitude, that's it. When you said I, I felt the gratitude when you said my grandparents put me through treatment. 
I couldn't let them down. That's you saying my relationship with my grandparents is above my relationship with my eating disorder. And that's powerful. Yes. <laughs> it's a privilege, right? It's the experience that I had. I wasn't covered by insurance, which is a whole nother thing to talk about. But residential is what, $1,500, $1,600 a day? And I was in it for six months. So the gift that my grandparents provided me was to get me through that. Um, and a lot of people don't have that privilege. Um, so how amazing is it that, and, you know, sometimes I feel guilty about it, but it is what it is. Um, but how amazing is it that I was provided that and I got through it, you know, to see the people like my peers who had scholarships, you know, that ended and they just got kicked out of treatment or, you know, they couldn't afford their full stay. It's like, that's heartbreaking. Do you know why you were getting, like what was happening? Cause you were getting tearful and that's the authentic voice that I love having on the podcast along with, you know, everything else you're saying, but what was happening just now? Um, I just miss them, you know, uh, it's hard because, uh, they were so important to my recovery and, I still don't want to let them down. They've been dead for a while now, but um, going through their death as well was also, I think I would say my last relapse um, when my grandma died, just to watch that process was terrible. But um, they provided me with such a gift and my, you know, the gift of education to go through college and the gift of recovery. I mean, what a privilege that is for me. And, and it's, Sometimes I, I feel guilty about it, that it's not fair. Other people aren't able to have that privilege. Um, so what can I do as a clinician now to spread the word, you know, of, of recovery and help my clients get to where they need to be or find resources? I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. Can you also speak to when you said, I could also talk for a long time about the insurance piece. So what was that? Because, and listeners cannot see this, but Hannah's eyes just rolled. And and a lot of us feel this way, but go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking to have to, you know, and I worked at day treatment before um, where I'm at now. And the, the kids would go inpatient one day and insurance would say, oh, well, they're not, you know, suicidal anymore. So we can and their coverage and ship them back home. And it's like, that's not how it works. You know, we're talking about insurance companies who never get to talk to the client or see their full trauma or see what they've been through. And they're able to just be like, oh, well, you're at this number, you're at this BMI and okay, well, it looks like you're doing great. So, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see the clients go through it, that they feel like they have to get sicker to, get more treatment and like how jacked up is that I I remember when I worked at residential and uh clients would be denied we would fight we'd have the 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 case go doc to doc or peer to peer whatever you however you say we'd go through appeals you know expedited appeals so we you know here within three days and as the clinician I think that was one of my most difficult moments was telling the client their insurance pulled or calling the parent or the spouse and say, I'm so sorry. I know they're not ready to go. Unfortunately, it was 
boxes were checked in her insurance file and they're they're saying no longer or even clients who have state funding residential isn't an option so they may go inpatient and then they're down to php and it's like you're skipping a whole important step in the process here a critical step right right so that's heartbreaking yeah i want to go back to something that you had said earlier and I think this is an important topic as well because there's so many mis there's so much misunderstanding around the the function of eating disorders and people are like you know if, if it's anorexia nervosa why can't you just eat is it vanity you know if it's bulimia why can't you just have whatever you know control whatever it is how did and without you going into your trauma how did the eating disorder, and I'm going to use the term work for you, because I heard you say, I didn't want to be seen. And that's a result from trauma. And to some degree, that could have saved your life. And I'm, I'm not saying that for you explicitly, but for some clients, it does. Like, how did the eating disorder in any way help you through the trauma. And again, help is not the word I want to use, but I'm going to the maladaptive way. Coping tool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it provided me a way to numb myself. Um, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't even like, oh, I want to be thinner. And I, I think that is the misconception with eating disorders. You know, if it was as simple as eating a cheeseburger, I would have eaten six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, you know, and I think we all would. If it was that simple, um, the food is just a part of it. Um, so I feel like the eating disorder provided me this, I don't know, friend, I would say, maybe not the best friend, but something to turn to or to focus on to get through what I went through. Um, and feeling like I never belonged anywhere. Um, I, I feel that the, the eating disorder probably played a, a, a big role in that is, well, I'm here for you. I'll give you comfort. You know, if you do this, this, and this, that means you're a good person. You're accomplished if you do this, this, and this. Um, so fulfilling some of that like fake um, self-esteem, I think that's what it provided me with. And I think that's why, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, but my experience in treatment um, I talk about my soul sisters. So these are the girls that I went through treatment with. And I never felt like I belonged anywhere or with anyone. And I felt always like a third wheel. But when I went to treatment, I feel like those are the people that took me as I was in the worst place. They heard what I've been through. They still loved me. Sometimes we got in fights, whatever, that's life. But they're so important to me even now. You know, I may not have seen them in 12 years, but we're still connected somehow and they're super special to me. When relationships like that happen in treatment and they happen often, I say to the clients, this is not unique to you being in these four walls. You, if you show this vulnerability, authenticity, if you search for others out in the world that want to be vulnerable, authentic, genuine, 
you can create these relationships out in the world. It's not unique. It's interesting. It's almost like you're stripped of all of your all of your maladaptive coping skills. So you show up as raw and authentic as possible. So it's a it's it's like a lesson. It's evidence that who you are is right. beautiful. Right. Right. And and some people, you know, I've had this experience as well as some people when they leave treatment, they don't want to continue relationships with you because they don't want to think about all that, um, which took me a long time to kind of process and be okay with, but that's their journey. And it's not up to me to say how they should, you know, treat their past. Um, but I think what you said hit it right on the head there is the authenticity and the vulnerability. Um, I was who I was and I can still carry out who I who I am, who I was at treatment into who I am now. I'd much rather be liked for who I am and disliked for who I am than be this fake person walking around in this box um, and liked for that, I guess. What do you think when you look back on your recovery journey, what do you think was the, the most difficult part of the process for you? Um, I would say, you know, being in treatment, I was a small town girl from, you know, way up here on the map. And I had treatment in Arizona and in California and being away from everything I knew, everyone I knew. Um, I think that was hard, you know, one of the most difficult things, but also the best thing that got me through that because the trauma that I went through at home um, labeled me and had me in this box. But when I went, you know, to a different state across the country, it's like, oh, like this realization that I, I can be who I am, wear what I want, do what I want, look what I, you know, want to look like and not be judged for it um, was pretty eye-opening. But being away from my family, it was tough. You know, we only had 30-minute phone calls uh, once a week. And so to split that time up, um, I had never been away from home before. So that was tough. That was probably one of the hardest. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So treatment facilities were available for you when you went to treatment. Are there, how do you help your clients that, as you said, that say are on state health plans, state health plans? Wait, what did we just say? State insurance. State insurance. How do you guide them? Because for them, residential treatment centers are not available. Right. So interestingly, I when I first went inpatient, I had to go eight hours away. Um, that was the closest inpatient facility when I was a senior in high school in 2007. Um, and then, you know, I was living in Arizona at the time with my brother. It wasn't supposed to be permanent, um, but that the access to facilities in the, um, like in the upper peninsula are scarce. So in order to navigate that, it was like, well, I only had a choice of really going in Arizona, um, because I was living there, but in, to, to help our clients navigate these different facilities, we're lucky enough to have residential close by. Um, but it is, it's tough. I mean, when I was in residential, we had clients from or my peers came from everywhere. It wasn't just Arizona. Um, so I, you know, th there's not enough coverage for residential treatment. There's not enough um, availability. Um, 
and that's difficult uh, to navigate as a clinician and personally, um, you know, trying to figure out what, what you need, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what modalities does this treatment facility offer that I like, what's their thought process, what will my insurance provide me? Um, it's all very messy, that's for sure. It, it, that's a perfect way of explaining it. It is. It's very messy and it's very unfortunate. What do you think took the longest for you to really understand about yourself? Sort of like what, what was the eating disorder maybe preventing you from understanding about yourself? Um, I think it took me, you know, 30 plus years to figure out that I am okay with who I am. Um, I don't have to have these spikes on my back to keep people away. Um, not everyone's going to hurt me. Um, I don't, I can be authentic and still be liked. Um, and just having that small town mindset was tough growing up. Um, and a lot of the family dysfunction, a lot of people, um, family members left. Uh, so I just didn't feel like I was good enough for anyone to stick around. Um, so having all that, you know, in my history, it's like, I get through the day and it's like, okay, I can be who I am. I, you know, I found friends who like me for who I am. And how cool is that? Like, I, I never would have thought that I've gotten to this point. That, that for me is one of the biggest gifts I've received as a recovered person is just that being who I am through and through and realizing that I'm a good person in spite of things that have happened in the past, in spite of this, that I am a good person. And like you, when I dropped into my own authentic self, it hurts if people don't like me back, but if they don't, that's okay. Cause other people do, they like me for exactly who I am. No, it, it can be tough. I mean, I think being authentic can be scary to some people or triggering, um, to other people, um, which is their own stuff and that's fine, but being who I am and being okay with it, it's took me a hell of a lot of time and work to get here. So it, it does hurt when people, um, have false assumptions uh, based on, you know, whatever. And then it really takes me a minute to be like, okay, like, like you said, I'd much rather be liked for who I am and disliked for who I am than liked for who I, who I'm not and pretending to. Yeah. I think that's also one of the reasons why I was so exhausted in my eating disorder, not only due to malnutrition, but just the constant energy it took for me to be somebody that I wanted to be. I didn't like myself when I was younger. I And if I didn't like myself, I thought, who's going to want to be friends with me? So the energy that it took all the time to try to pretend to be somebody else to adapt to whoever I was hanging out with because I thought that's what they wanted and it was exhausting right the facade you know um so being recovered it's like the facade comes off and what a weight is lifted off your shoulders I mean I can wear what I want if I want to wear you know a t-shirt then you know drop an f-bomb that's who I am and you know, if someone else doesn't like that, then okay. But I know that I am who I am. I, I mean, well, you know, I am trying my best. 
I also know that because, you know, there is part of the eating disorder, at least for me, that uh, it was about my appearance. It wasn't just about the, you know, there were so many things that went on in my eating disorder that I didn't want to look at in my family system and culture and life. So it was definitely a distractor, but it also was about my appearance. And the thing that I also carry as such a gift is I am who I am because of my voice, because of my heart, because of the way I see the world, not because of what size I am, not because I have the latest trend. You know, I, I don't wear, I, for people who know me, I, I don't wear trendy clothes. It's not who I am. I don't, and there's nothing wrong with them if you do, but I'm not going to pretend anymore because that's not what I want people to see about me. I want them to see past that. Do you think, and I, and I, I apologize. I feel like I'm kind of going back and forth and things you were, you were talking about your grandparents earlier. Do you feel like they were a, the biggest motivation for you to recover? Like what, what for you motivated you for the recovery process? I would say my grandparents, um, but also, you know, I, I remember when I called my mom, you know, that it was kind of like this light bulb moment that I needed help. And it was after, you know, running in a monsoon and it was like, my body was so cold and I was like, I, you know, that was normal to me. But then, um, I was living with my brother at the time and I had a baby nephew and I went into his room and I was supposed to be babysitting him. And I'm just like, I want to see him grow up. I want to see, you know, these amazing things he's going to do. And I'm not going to be around much longer if, if I don't take care of myself. So at that time, it was definitely my baby nephew who provided me that like motivation. You know, he was a, such an innocent creature, you know, he didn't really know who I was, but like, he meant so much to me. Um, so he was definitely kind of that, like, come to Jesus moment, light bulb kind of situation, just checking on him and being responsible for him. Yeah. And now you have two children of your own. I do. I do. Right? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you took a big breath. <laughs> yeah. It's just weird to say sometimes out loud, but, um, you know, my, my daughter, she is one and we were, she was loving on some cupcakes this week. And, you know, she was putting frosting all over my face. And it's like five plus years ago, I would have been like flipping out about are these calories being absorbed into my skin? You know, what if it gets in my mouth? And at the time, like, I just took a, a video and I was like, this is so funny because she was putting it on like makeup. And it was just like, how amazing is that moment? Something so simple. Um, but something I definitely would not have been able to do, you know. Um, my best friend is also having a baby and I was able to enjoy a cupcake that like for the gender reveal. And like, those are things that are so new to me um, that I would not have been able to do in the past. Yeah. I don't think if you, if you haven't had an eating disorder, you can truly understand the visceral fear that goes through your body with some, like, Imagine th the same story from two different perspectives. As a recovered person, you're like, oh my God, my one-year-old daughter is putting frosting on my face like makeup. I love it. And then flip to the other side, the visceral fear 
of the same thing. And it, by the way, it's frosting. It's not poison, but it feels like that. Or I again, I always say for me, I'm speaking from my Oh own yeah. Opinion. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And you know, I would say also one of my biggest motivations now is my friends who have passed, my soul sisters who have passed on. Um again, but I my first roommate at Mirasol passed away. Um, you know, the, and then one of my, uh, sisters, um, another one from Mirasol passed away in March or April. Um, and I was talking to her on Instagram right before she had passed. Um, so these are people that, although we haven't seen each other in 12 years, 13, 11, whatever, means so much to me. And now they're gone. You know, I had a friend recently die of a drug overdose a few weeks ago. And it's like, that kills me. Um, but I'm going to take their energy and their spirit. And I want to propel that into my work. Um, but it is, it, it's been a tough, a tough few months trying to figure that out and navigate it for sure. But I would say that's a big motivation. This is the difference of being recovered taking a tragic event and saying, what do I want to do with this? And I, and I don't mean immediately. I don't mean that like when there's a tragedy, you have to think to yourself, how do I use this to better the world? First, you have to go through the grieving process. You have to probably go through anger, all these emotions, and then say, and now what? And stay present with the grief, with the anger, with the sadness. That's being recovered. These tragedies unfortunately happen in our lives they don't stop happening even when you're in recovery not at all not at all but are we going to choose to react with an eating disorder or are we going to choose to react you know with our recovery brain and that's kind of what I tell our clients too like shit storm doesn't stop happening even when you get out of your bubble of treatment people are going to die you're going to get in fights so you need to learn how to navigate through those events because this is life. And like you said, yeah, the grieving process and let's get through this. But at the end of the day, what are you going to do with that energy? And the shit storms are going to happen whether you're in your eating disorder or not. And so when you're recovered, you're, I'm going to say recovery process from a traumatic or, or a fight or whatever it is is short. It, it doesn't take as long. You move through it or there's a level of acceptance as opposed to using an eating disorder behavior and there's no movement. Things mm -hmm. just remain. And as a clinician, I've seen this, you know, in treatment for eating disorders. And when I worked at day treatment, it's like these clients need a safe space to have these experiences and know they can get through it and they're still loved because that's where the work is. If we see clients go through the process as a robot and they're just eating the food and like, oh yeah, group is great. Like, come on, you know, they need to get through this tough stuff. You know, are they going to act out? Sure. But they need to be able to do that and then get through it. And then the next day be like, oh yeah, that was totally my inner child coming out or, or whatever it is. And then they're able to move past it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, treatment work is, is, is really fascinating. It's, you know, I, 
I encourage every clinician at some point to work at higher levels of care because it is powerful work. And you, I, I used to love, and I know this is so funny, but I used to love like the holidays when like there was, there was just, there was other life in the house, right? Like I remember when I used to work out in Los Angeles um, at residential and there was this gentleman, Steve, who every year would bring in the Christmas tree. And it was just like a moment when all the clients, just for a few moments, no eating disorder, just it's it was almost like a house, just a bunch of people. And by the way, I do want to say only for a moment, the eating disorder wasn't there, but to see it was amazing. I, it, it used to, it used to fill my heart so much, Hannah, those few moments where it just wasn't there and life seemed normal in whatever way normal means it, it for just a moment. And that's, that's a gift as well. I, I, I apologize. I know I'm using the term gift a lot. It just, maybe it's because it's the day after Christmas and <laughs> I have no idea because I'm Jewish, so I don't celebrate <laughs> Christmas, but ah, whatever. That's all right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I encourage everyone to, at least for a short period of time. And I also know that's where I got my best training was working yeah. in higher levels of care. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I see that from my experience, you know, those small moments, whether it's a birthday or we're watching a movie or it's a holiday. It's, you know, I worked at a respite home for a while and we made Christmas cookies. And it was the first time those kids had ever made Christmas cookies. And for just a brief moment, all the behaviors, you know, um, mental health concerns, the anger just went away and we made Christmas cookies. And those are the moments that you got to cling on to, especially being a clinician when times are hard too. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah, I, I say this at during every episode and I always mean it. I am really sorry. We're going to have to start winding this down. It's it's just been wonderful having you here on the show. And listeners, I want you to know that Hannah was very nervous for this podcast. So Hannah, it was a pleasure having you. I do have a final question before we end. But before I ask that, is there anything you would like to say that I didn't ask or anything that you would just like to add? Um, I don't think so. I think this is great. <laughs> Maybe just a, a heartfelt thank you to all the, the, your interviewees before me, um, you know, I told Karen that I feel like an imposter as the people that you have interviewed, um, were my heroes in recovery. Um, and I know they're big names in this field. So I feel very odd that I'm like, Hey, I'm 31. I just got my license. Um, so I only hope that I can someday be at, at, at that level. Um, but just a, a heartfelt thank you to those those people in the field who have created resources and books and talks and whatever, um, a community where we can recover. I think beautiful, beautifully said. And I also want to give a shout out to your old therapist, Gwen, who I've asked to be on this podcast and says she has nothing to say. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to talk to her. <laughs> right? Okay. So we're going to make sure Gwen listens to this one. Gwen. I want you to hear this. You have a lot to say, so I got to get you on the podcast, right? Hannah, you know Gwen. Yes, 
yeah, she sent me a book. I just asked her, I was like, can you please autograph it? So she autographed it and she sent it to me and I was so excited. Yeah. I'm like, you co-authored a book and you don't think you have anything to share. Gwen is probably going to kill me for you saying She's amazing. I know. I know. All right, Hannah, for your final question. Yes, ma'am. If someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? What would it say? Well, I think it would depend who's writing it, but um, do no harm, take no shit. I love it. (laughs) That was fantastic. Do no harm, take no shit. Great way to end the podcast. Hannah, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It has absolutely been a pleasure having you as a guest on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.